Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Polly Trottenberg, Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Transportation. She is the department's number two under Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Polly is Chief Operating Officer for a department with more than 50,000 employees across the country and covering all modes of transportation. That's aviation, roadways, mass transit, rail, waterways, pipelines, and it has a role in things like pedestrian walkways and bike routes and more. She helped pass and is now helping implement the landmark bipartisan infrastructure law. There are few people who know transportation policy and its importance for communities of all types, large and small, urban and rural, wealthy and underserved, better than Polly does. She has more than 25 years of experience at the municipal level, at a multi-state authority, and at the federal level. Polly began her career in the Massachusetts State House on Beacon Hill and eventually migrated to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. From there, she went to Capitol Hill in Washington, where she worked for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan as a legislative aide, then for Senator Chuck Schumer as legislative director, and later for Senator Barbara Boxer of California as both legislative director and deputy chief of staff. After a brief stint in the nonprofit world at a group called Build America's Future, Polly returned to government service in 2009 when she joined the Obama administration. There, she was Assistant Secretary and Undersecretary for Policy at DOT under Secretary Ray LaHood. That's when I had the good fortune to meet Polly and work with her. In 2014, she was asked by then-New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio to serve in the mayor's cabinet as New York City's Commissioner of Transportation, a role she filled for seven years. I am so deeply happy to be able to present my conversation with Polly to you. I admire her so much. When I first started working on transportation issues while at the White House, I really did not know anything about transportation. And compared to her, I still don't. But Polly took the time to explain the substance, the politics, the local priorities, and so much more. And in addition to being brilliant and so expert in her field, Polly is also a fantastic colleague and person. She's exactly the type of person you want working on complex problems that are really important for the country. She is endlessly inquisitive, constructive, thoughtful, funny, and candid in a in like a New York City no bullshit cut to the chase kind of candid. I hope you enjoy today's episode as much as I enjoyed recording it with Polly. She and I sat down on Friday, February 24th. Polly Trottenberg, welcome to Staffer. Thanks, Jim. So glad to be here. I am elated to have you on the show today. (laughs) I really am. Um, As you may know, I like to start uh, these conversations just by asking people about, you know, where they grew up and what family life was like. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I kind of grew up in two places, mainly in Pelham, New York, in Westchester, that I affectionately refer to as the suburb that time forgot, Um, (laughs) and then also in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, for my very early years and some of my high school years. Okay. And what what took you to Cambridge? And, you know, tell me about your parents and and what they did. Yeah, I, I mean... I'm probably lucky. You won't meet many people of my age who had Depression-era World War II parents, but I did. Both my parents were World War II vets. 
My father wow. was a bombardier navigator. My mother drove a truck here wow. in Washington, D.C. They had me kind of late in life. Um, and so, you know, I grew up, I think, in kind of a unique household. The, the people of, you know, as we would call them, the greatest generation, you know, um, had had fascinating lives, really difficult childhoods and amazing experiences through the Depression and the war and then the post-war boom period. And my father, who had grown up very poor, had an opportunity under the GI Bill of Rights to go to Harvard, which was something that he had never dreamed of growing up as a child. His family were poor. They weren't college educated. My mother actually, women of her era, she went to secretarial school in Cambridge. So they met in Boston. Uh, and that's where they started their married life. Um, I would say this about my mother in that generation. Had she been born 30 years later, she would have been a tenured professor of literature at, at Yale, but given yeah. the time, she wasn't. Uh, and so my both my parents worked at various times in their lives at Harvard, and then we moved to New York when my father got a chance to work at the Ford Foundation under um, then McGeorge Bundy, one of the one of the famous figures from the, uh, you know, from the, the Vietnam era. Wow, incredible. Now, I know uh, you went to college at Barnard, and afterward, you went to Harvard and earned a master's in transportation and urban policy. I'm wondering, what is it along that journey in, your, in those years that led you to fall in love with this policy area that now is your life's work? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Jim. I've, I've been asked that question before, and you know, you can't always come up with the perfect answer, but I, I think I was lucky in my formative years, you know, to live in to live in Cambridge and go to high school in, in Boston and then to be in New York City, you know, in the 80s in what was a challenging time in urban America. And so I think anyone who is kind of experiencing big city life at that time, if you were engaged, was thinking about these issues, was thinking about policing, housing, transportation. I kind of came in at the period where the New York City subway system was at one of its lowest ebbs, and then the period where there started to be a renewal and the opportunity to see, you know, if you have a, a safe and efficient public transportation system, it's transformational for a city's economy and for the people who live in that city. So I just think you sort of, I guess I came of age when a lot of those issues were on the forefront. Also, I got to live uh, for, for a year and a half after college in Chicago at a time when Chicago was particularly grappling with all its major public housing projects, some of which have now been torn down. But at the time I lived, they were still up like the infamous Robert, uh, Robert Taylor homes and grappling with how we make, you know, how we provide safe and, you know, attractive public housing, something cities still struggle with to this day. Yeah. So after you graduate with your master's, as I understand it, anyway, your first uh, job uh, in working in the transportation space is at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. How did you get there? Yeah, well, you, well, you sort of skipped a step. So I did. I okay, was, yeah. So yeah. fill me in. So when I'm getting ready to graduate from graduate school, I, I'm probably not, I think unlike today's very directed generation, both when I graduated from college and I graduated from graduate school, I didn't really have a great plan about what's going to happen next. I had a wonderful professor you speak about the mentor question. He's one of my yeah. mentors, a guy named Alan Allshuler, um, who's helped me throughout my whole career, brilliant transportation expert. And he said to me, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I had, in graduate school, I had worked at Massport, 
at the Massachusetts Port Authority. I'd worked there in the okay. summer between my first and second year in grad school, and then I'd worked there on and off a bit in my senior year. I mean, my you know, my second year in grad school. And Massport had approached me about a job, but it kind of wasn't the right thing. It was very sort of spreadsheet focused, and I, you know, sort of realized that wasn't going to be my path. And so he said, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I don't know, maybe something in, you know, state or local government. And he said to me, I still remember, and it was a lot of years ago, he said, well, I know a state senator. Her name is Lois Pines. She's always on the side of the angels. She's looking for a press person. I'll give, you a, I'll give her a call. Oh, wow. So he called Lois Pines, and I went and interviewed for the press job, for which I clearly was not quite properly qualified. But there was a, a, one of her staffers who was the, the main counsel. She, she chaired a committee back then that was called the Commerce and Labor Committee. And, you know, the whole group of them interviewed me, and he decided, well, she seems more like a policy person. So he hired me um, to be a staffer on that committee. He's now my husband, just for the record. But anyways, that's... <laughs> I did not know that. So I actually started my political career on, uh, on Beacon Hill, which ah. in, in the era of, of Billy Bulger, if, you, if anyone on your, any of your listeners know Massachusetts political history, it was a, quite an interesting time to be uh, in, in state government. <laughs> and Massachusetts politics have just transformed since that time. There were very few women in leadership roles. And I think Lois encountered, you know, a lot of sexism and other things. I mean, now in Massachusetts, you have women governor, attorney general, mayors of the major Boston area cities, senator. Right. It's, it's, it's very yeah. different politics than it was back in the, back in the nineties. Yeah. You know, you mentioned your, uh, your mentor, Professor Altschuler. What makes him such a great mentor? I mean, it's funny. I, I I reflected on my time at the Kennedy School, where I really was sort of, I think, struggling a bit to find, to kind of find my groove. And I took a bunch of different transportation courses, and I, I took one on transportation economics, and it was so complex, and I felt like I could barely follow what was happening in it. And then, you know, I took statistics and all the other things, and um, you know, he he sort of he taught transportation in a way that resonated with me, which is there's an analytic component, but there's a political component that there's sort of all the pieces of what makes transportation so interesting. There's history, there's community activism. They're all the things that really are modern transportation. And it just really, it, it, it just really resonated with me. And he's just always been for me. He's just, he's an extraordinary wise, um, and wonderful man. He's, he's mentored and coached a lot of students and just always was available to me, um, you know, to give great career advice. Uh, you know, I, I, I've turned to him, you know, time and time again throughout my career, you know, also yeah. just to check in. He was the, he was the transportation secretary in Massachusetts for a time. So I'll just to uh, check in. I'm like, Hey, now I'm the <laughs> commissioner in New York. What do you think about this idea? Professor Schuler? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, so I want to I want to uh, talk to you about uh, your current role and then how you got there, um, because you have today what, you know, many in our biz would call the big job. Um, you are the number two at USDOT and its chief operating officer. It's an enormous organization. I mean, uh, as I understand, nearly 55,000 employees across the country, 11 different operating administrations and bureaus. You are the number two there. Your work, 
obviously supports Secretary Buttigieg in some ways, but you're a principal in your own right. And what I'm wondering is, after having been a staffer in many different capacities, you became a principal at the New York City uh, as the commissioner of transportation there as well in, in Mayor de Blasio's cabinet. But are there things now at DOT that, you know, maybe you had to stop doing now that you are sort of the recipient of so much staff work or do things differently as a principal? Well, yeah. And I think, you know, I know this is something you like to explore um, in the show, that transition from staffer to principal. And I have to go back because I think, as you you mentioned, I was a staffer, I was a staffer on Beacon Hill, and then I was a, a Senate staffer for 12 years, and then had the opportunity to run a nonprofit for a year. And so that was sort of the first, that was the first transitional moment. And I used to, I used to just sort of laugh about it, because after 12 years of being in the Senate, and 10 years of being a legislative director, where you are very almost uniquely chained always to kind of what is happening on the Senate floor and the Senate schedule. And in the Senate, as you know, things, it can be very unpredictable. Suddenly you're doing gun control. Whoops, suddenly an amendment that's going to cost your state, you know, $500 million hits the floor. It's just the, the nature of that body is you kind of have to be on your toes day and night all the time. And yeah. having the opportunity to step away and run a nonprofit for a year and kind of be my own woman travel and think and and kind of not be constantly engaged in the day-to-day of the Senate. I found it tremendously liberating. I loved it. And then I had an opportunity to go, as you know, to join the Obama administration. Um, And so that was sort of my first taste of making that transition. And it is, I've seen a lot of folks from Capitol Hill make the transition, but I've Mm -hmm. seen some who can't. There is a real difference between being that behind the scenes person, um, you know, you're you're working for your boss, and obviously you're a personality in your own right. But to, but to a big degree, you're channeling what your boss wants. And if you speak in public, you're usually speaking on behalf of them. To much more, you're speaking on behalf of yourself when you're more of a principal. And clearly, right, you have to start to let go of some things. You you can't, you know. I have a joke about about delegation. Um, because I've seen people do it well, and I've seen them do it so badly, and I try and do it well, which is, you know, you have to start to let go and delegate. But the important thing about delegating is not that, hey, Jim, I handed this thing to you to do, but that now when you do it, I'm going to support you. And even if you don't do it well, you didn't do it as well as I would have done it, that's okay, because delegation means I turned it over to you. And, and that's that's not an easy thing for staffers who are detail-oriented and often perfectionists and type A's to do. When you're in a big organization, as you say, an organization of 55,000 people that's operating at a volume and a speed um, that is nothing, you know, that is sort of unprecedented, you, you got to learn to let go and trust the people around you and have yeah. their backs. Yeah. The point, the, your point about delegating means support is actually not one that, you know, that's not a common understanding of delegating. Uh, and it's such an important point. I, I Well, and I, you know, I've had the chance now in my roles to really think a lot about decision making and how you empower a big staff around you. And, you know, it, it's a mistake that I've seen some elected officials make. I won't name names where they delegate. And then if it didn't turn out the way they want, there's recriminations. Mm, and it has yes. an amazingly paralytic effect on the staff. Yep. 
because they get fearful that if they make the wrong decision and, 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 you know, it's, it's made me as a principal want to be very careful that when I delegate, I delegate, there's not recriminations and that I try and be predictable in my reactions. It's another thing I've seen some principles, the staff can't reliably channel them and know what they're going to think on a given matter. That is also paralytic. And you, in a big organization, people need to be able to channel you. That is the type of way of conducting oneself as a principal that is uniquely informed by being a staffer first. And there are, right? And that is- I think that's right. I love that. Um, so now as the recipient of so much staff work, what are the hallmarks in your opinion of great staff work? I mean, one thing that one is very fortunate in you know, in transportation, it's a wonderful field. I mean, it really attracts brilliant, passionate people. And that's, you know, that's for starters, right? You want people who love what they're doing. Um, you know, it, it's funny. I used to have a test on Capitol Hill when I was interviewing folks. I was interviewing a healthcare LA or, you know, someone who's going to do judiciary. I obviously wanted to test their subject matter expertise and so forth. But I would often just ask people kind of political junkie questions. Because I had a theory on Capitol Hill that people who are also political junkies, like I am, that would be like an extra benefit of the job. Yeah. Because Capitol Hill work is hard. You don't get paid that much. It's very long hours. You can get a lot of abuse heaped on your head. People who love those, not only I love healthcare, but I just, I love watching all the Senate fights that are going on. And So, I mean, I do think staffers that love the work and are engaged in all elements of it. There's no substitute for that. Obviously, you also want people that, you know, are, are diligent and can get along with their colleagues and all of that. But, um, you know, people who love the work tend to be great at it. People who don't yeah. love the work, not so great at it. Yeah. So do you have any pet peeves that just bother you in terms of staff work? And I'm asking on behalf of roughly 55,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> Give or take. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not a pet peeve, but it's a piece of advice I feel strongly about. And I would say this to the 55,000 people, which is, you know, pull a chair up to the table and share your opinions. Um, to me, it's, it's the people who've been the most valuable to work with over the years. And look, it's easier said than done. When you get into the higher levels of an organization, people don't always feel empowered to just share their opinions with you. But it's, it's incredibly valuable when you do at all levels of an organization I've gotten some of my best insights from people who are, you know, whatever, maybe many layers down the food chain, but had tremendous substantive or organizational insights, complaints, advice. And, you know, I just always want to encourage people like, don't, this is my joke I have when we come into a meeting room and people gravitate in a staffer way towards the seats off away from the table, That's particularly right. women do this. And I order everyone to come sit at the table. It, it's sort of symbolic, but it's also like sit at the table, have an opinion. Don't yeah. be afraid. Well, it's important. But as you said, that that goes also to your point about support. You know, I mean, that is supporting people being great staffers to invite them to the table. Because, uh, you know, you know, as you said, it's kind of a risk. It can feel risky, you know, depending on your level to share your opinion. Absolutely. No, no. And I even particularly like to try and nurture the contrarians who, um, you know, sometimes they they will be the people at the table who are like, they're every, you know, 10 people have formed a consensus opinion and one person's like, nah, I don't agree with that. That can be the hardest of all. Yeah. And you, you got to create space for those folks to express their doubts and, you know, not maybe 
two out of every 10 times, you'd be like, yeah, you know what? The group think we missed that. It's a really important, you know, opinion to consider. Yeah. So you and I first met and got the opportunity to work together when I was at the White House doing legislative affairs and, and transportation was one of the issues in my portfolio. And you were the assistant secretary for policy at DOT under Secretary LaHood. And one of the things we really wanted to do was pass a major transformative <laughs> transportation bill. We had it and, all written, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. We were not able to, to get that done. Um, but now here you are um, at DOT again, and you know President Biden and this administration did indeed pass that very bill, that very got aspirational, it got yeah. it done. The bipartisan infrastructure law is now on the books and you get to implement it. Um, what's something that you are really excited about in terms of implementing that law that maybe doesn't get as much attention, um, you know, as, as the name of the bill itself? Yeah, well, I mean, let me step back and just take a moment to sort of savor what you said. Because, right, ha having both of us been in an earlier administration where this didn't happen, for a bunch of reasons. Healthcare was a higher priority. I, I will say honestly, some presidents love transportation more than others. <laughs> president Biden is the biggest lover of transportation, I think, of any modern era president. He really is. And he really is a legislator. Yeah. You know, not only the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but the CHIPS yep. bill and the Inflation Reduction Act and the gun control bill. I mean, he, he really... This is where I think his long years of experience on Capitol Hill, his bipartisan relationships, even in what is an incredibly polarized time in American politics, the legislative accomplishments of the past couple of years are pretty extraordinary. And so yes. for us at DOT, we are getting to implement the largest transportation bill in American history and an incredibly far-reaching one. And, you know, Jim, you're right. There, there are lots of big programs that everybody's heard a lot about. And then lots of smaller, really exciting things tucked in there. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, just bread and butter major investments in transit and rail, the, you know, the long-awaited backlog of projects on the Northeast Corridor, huge investments in building out EV charging infrastructure, which has been a fascinating partnership between USDOT and USDOE, Department of Energy. And, and Jim, you may remember in the Obama years, there was something called the Partnership for Sustainable Communities. Yeah. It was DOT, EPA, and HUD. We didn't work that closely with the Department of Energy, but now in an era where addressing climate change is such a huge priority and decarbonizing the transportation sector is such a huge priority, that's probably the agency that we work the most closely with now. Wow. We have an extraordinary partnership. So there's been a it's been amazing to be part of that evolution and, you know, just other work that people would know less about. I mean, we're, obviously people are focused on electric vehicles, but we're looking at ways to decarbonize the aviation sector, the maritime sector, the rail sector, and, you know, getting into very cutting edge technologies. And it's it's been just fascinating. I mean, that is something that I have always loved about the transportation field whenever I've had the opportunity to dabble in it, like I did back then, is just you, it, it is possible to visualize a, a different experience for, you know, average Americans walking about their communities, getting, you know, from here to there 50 years from now because of work you're doing today. And that's not the case with other policy areas. Sometimes the changes are just a little more ethereal. Yeah. And 
communities, you know, really live and die by transportation in many respects. But, but you know, but it is also, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like infrastructure investments, they're with us for 50 or 100 years. But look, that also means the mistakes we make and clearly what we did in the interstate area in, in urban America, like we're living with those mistakes. In some cases, I can tell you from my time in New York, almost 100 years later. And they are... Oh devilishly complicated to go back and address. And, you know, that's another sort of speaking of other really interesting parts of the bill. There's a program called Reconnecting Communities and then kind of an add-on to that that was in the Inflation Reduction Act called the, I forget the neighborhood, I forget the exact title of a neighborhood something. Those couple of programs are giving us a few billion dollars to start to go back and address the legacy of the interstate era, particularly in urban America. Mm. Um, huge. Yes. Huge challenge, huge opportunity. Um, and it's it's something that the that the federal government has never really attempted to do. That is really exciting. And when you know, when people are able to observe changes to that, you know, city landscape, everyone's so grateful. You know, like my my family went to Boston last year and what had been this huge overhang of a highway now gone. You know, when my wife lived there a long time, like 20 years ago, it was there and it was gross underneath. Today, it's this beautiful green way. Well, you know, I'll, 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 I'll take it full circle for you because my mentor, Alan Altshuler, in the class he taught in Kennedy School, you have these case studies. The first case study was about the removal of the central artery in Boston. Wow. Um, and just what a process that was to get it done. And I have to agree with you, um, you know, having grown up and spent time in and around Boston, standing in the place where that highway ran and just looking at the city re-knit itself. And as I would always say about that part of Boston, in the interstate area, we not only tore down one of the most historic neighborhoods in Boston, we tore down one of the most historic neighborhoods in the United States of America and did it in the blink of an eye. I mean, it's really, when you go back now and look what was done there's been incredible research done. There's a guy who's done mapping, before and after mapping of all the cities from the interstate era. It's, we displaced millions of people. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a part of American history, which I think we'll be grappling with for decades and decades and decades to come. Yeah. You know, you, uh, you, I want to now talk about your time as commissioner of transportation in the city of New York. Um, I and right on this topic, I literally just a couple of weeks ago finished reading Robert Caro's The Power Broker uh, uh, about Robert Moses, who is sort of the archetype for this approach to transportation of laying down roads. And something that you said early on in the interview before we got on this topic that really resonated with me was just like thinking about transportation, but also in the context of history and neighborhoods and community those those values right that that those perspectives were just completely ignored uh, for many decades of of planning so i'm 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 wondering during your time as commissioner uh of, of transportation in new york was there something that you look back on and you say i'm really proud that we were able to do this which you know changed a a community or you know an experience for New Yorkers in a way that's really meaningful? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I want to respond a little bit on the power broker, though, because just one interesting thing about being commissioner in New York City, you know, 
you wind up having in your jurisdiction some of those Moses roads. Um, and they are, they're just so difficult and complicated to deal with. Moses, the, the, the way he tore apart the urban fabric of New York is unbelievable. Um, so his legacy will live on forever, for better or for worse. And there are Moses, is a guy named Ed Logue in Boston. I mean, there were, you know, Caro wrote an amazing book about Moses, but there were like Moses's in every American city. Even really, one thing that's oh, amazing being back at the national level, even really small cities went out of their way to tear down their downtowns and run a highway through. Um, it's really quite unbelievable what happened in that era. But the fun thing about, for sure, being a local official is you get to see the handiwork firsthand, up close, you know, every day. And that part is incredible. Um, you know, and so I, I was commissioner there for seven years. I was the longest serving uh, transportation commissioner in New York City history. Oh, that's cool. I didn't uh, know that. Mm -hmm. And I got to work on dozens and dozens and dozens of projects, roadway safety projects. You know, there's a very famous, uh, enormous, it's basically a highway that runs through Queens called Queens Boulevard. It was a, actually Moses at one point widened it. Um, and it was, it became colloquially known as the Boulevard of Death. And at one point had double digit fatality rates every year. And wow. there were several commissioners, two commissioners who preceded me, Iris Weinshaw, actually Chuck Schumer's wife, and then Jeanette Sadekan did some work on it. And then we came in in the de Blasio administration, did a lot more work, more redesign, speed limits, speed cameras, and saw those fatalities dropped that there were years when there were no fatalities. So we did that in a lot of places in New York. I think there's nothing that feels more powerful than that. We, we also, one thing, I think a project that I really enjoyed that was for me, it proved a titanic battle and I got sued many times and it was, it was the politics were tough, was creating uh, a busway on 14th Street running along uh, lower Manhattan. It was kind of arose out of a need to fix the subway tunnel that ran underneath 14th Street and involved mayors, governors, the MTA, New York City DOT, lawsuits, activism, you name it. But, you know, it was the city really leaping into essentially we're shutting down the street to vehicular traffic. We're going to we're going to make it, you know, an incredible bus route. And people just thought it was going to be a disaster. And it turned out to be a huge success. Um, and for me, just I had an opportunity, here's sort of an, I think an interesting lesson, a public policy lesson, it applies in transportation, could apply in other things too. I got to spend time with the folks in Sweden when they did congestion pricing in Stockholm. And they had a chart that showed the chart of public opinion on congestion pricing. And the chart showed people thought it was a pretty good idea. And as they got closer and closer to when they were actually going to implement it, public opinion plummeted. And the moment they were about to do it, the public had turned against it, the press had turned against it, but they powered through. And as soon as they implemented it, the benefits became apparent very clearly. Congestion dropped dramatically, air quality improved, and public opinion soared back up again. And ah. it's interesting, in Stockholm, they actually had to take it down the way they had set it up and put it to a vote. And the voters voted affirmatively to keep it. It's just a lesson for those of us, I think, trying to do big things in the public policy space. You kind of have to be prepared to go into the, you know, the trough of public of public doubt and, you know, public doubt and anger. And, you know, that can be very challenging. But 
you know, if, if you've got good, you know, if, if what you're going to do is, is going to be good policy, then hopefully very soon public opinion will swing the other way. And that I certainly had that experience on 14. Now, look, sometimes it doesn't. And then obviously you, you got to pivot quickly, but it, it's just, a, you know, sometimes you got to you got to have some stick-to-itiveness when you're trying to do big things. Yeah. And to me, that's, you know, the art of politics is building that capital and trust to be able to do those big things and survive the tough times, right? So you want to spend that political capital um, in a way that achieves an outcome that will be beneficial for everyone and being and having yeah, an opportunity it, I, to, to demonstrate the wisdom, uh, you know, if, if you, if, you know, if indeed you were right having the benefit of the public experiencing those benefits is. Yeah, you know, I would say it's so funny. That's maybe one way in which national politics and local politics diverge. I think in local politics, every community and neighborhood, you kind of have to start all over again. Sure. Yeah, right. Okay, good point. <laughs> and, yeah. and we would often try, I think, when we were doing, you know, projects that people had questions and were controversial, say, hey, we come over here. We did it in this other neighborhood. You can go look at it. And that not didn't work as well as you might think. Yeah, right. Well, so let me talk about your your federal experience. So you, um, you, as you mentioned, you were on Capitol Hill for 12 years. You worked for uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, for Chuck Schumer as Senator Schumer's legislative director, and for Barbara Boxer, a senator from California, as her legislative director and deputy chief of staff. Um, you have also worked, as I mentioned, for Ray LaHood and now as Secretary Buttigieg. They're, they're all very different people, uh, very different leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder, are there any similarities uh, between any of them? Or, you know, are there things that you take kind of from each one and say, OK, I'm going to build on that or that's something that I, you know, it's a lesson of leadership that I, I, yeah. I like and I'm going to take that one. There are. An amazingly different group of people, I have to say. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's my own ability to be somewhat adaptable that has allowed me to survive. <laughs> I will say for me, probably the biggest transition, and I like to tell the story because it's funny, was between Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Chuck Schumer. I was Senator Moynihan's um, transportation LA. And again, you know, sort of you started asking me a bit about my parents. He, he reminded me a bit of them. He was of that generation. He was a little bit younger, but they actually had known him up in Cambridge. And, you know, I, he and my father, men of that era, were sort of tough, hyper-intellectual, hard-drinking guys. Um, so I don't know. He reminded me a bit of my dad, perhaps. And working for him, you really had to show your intellectual prowess. And, you know, he was, he was known to make grown men with PhDs cry like babies. Um, and so when we would write memos for him, we'd write these beautiful, brilliant memos with literary allusions and history. And you would have loved my memos, Jim. They were so good. I know. Um, I wish I'd. They're I lost. They're lost in the them. mist of time, unfortunately. Um, and we were just very careful and deliberative about what we did. He cared a lot about his sort of intellectual persona. Um, but, you know, that meant we didn't move. We didn't move at the speed of light. So I sort of went from that environment to Chuck Schumer, where um, we moved at the speed of light 24-7, and he didn't want fancy memos. He wanted output. And it definitely, you know, took me some time to sort of adjust to the pace and to sort of like, the memo just needs to be a B-minus. 
He just needs the information, the letter, the literary allusions and the beautiful writing. <laughs> it's not, he doesn't have time for that. But I, I really came to adapt to that, um, that faster pace. That's sort of how politics had evolved. And I'd say this obviously about Chuck Schumer, now the Senate majority leader. Um, he had an extraordinary ability to get things done and to achieve legislative victories. And obviously, um, We've seen that, you know, speaking out the president as an extraordinary legislator, but he had pretty extraordinary partners with Chuck Schumer and, of course, then Speaker Nancy Pelosi, um, who corralled their respective caucuses. Not always easy on the left and the right. Um, and, you know, helped us, I think, achieve, again, what I think are two of the most productive legislative years I've certainly seen in, in all my time in politics. Yeah, inarguably. So you've talked about the senators. You've also had the opportunity to work for two secretaries of transportation. Tell me about them. Yeah, I mean, I actually got to work for three. I got to work for, for Secretary Fox, but only only for a little while. But I, I, I got to that. serve okay. with, with Secretary LaHood for over four years and now Secretary Buttigieg. And I look, I have one joke I like to make. Midwesterners are just nicer. They're really <laughs> nice people. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a particularly interesting time serving with Secretary LaHood because he was a Republican in a Democratic administration and didn't come in with a big transportation background and didn't know a lot of us who joined him on the political team. But I have to say, I was always amazed at how quickly he grew to trust all of us around him, to rely on us. And, you know, we affectionately called him Uncle Ray for a reason, because he was very avuncular and kind and really, um, you know, I think had a special, he had been a staffer himself, by the way, uh, and That's so right. I think he, for, for Bob Michael. So I think he had that ability to really kind of understand what the little people were thinking and feeling. And, and I really saw that in him. Um, you know, I, I like I'd like to joke, you know, that I, I'm, I'm a New York Democrat and one of my nicest bosses ever was a Republican from from Peoria, Illinois. So I would also say my current boss from South Bend, Indiana, also very nice. And again, you know, folks know him very well. He's a national figure you know, was famous as a mayor for transforming, to help transform a, a city that really had fallen on hard times, had been the site of the famous Studebaker auto plant and, and you know, helped bring economic revitalization back to it. And then ran, I think, what was an incredibly inspirational presidential campaign. And obviously his communication gifts are extraordinary. Yes. Um, and just for me, that's, you know, Talk about the things you can always do better. I'm not of the Twitter era so much. So just watching his ability to communicate and connect with people is, you know, for me, just a great learning experience, something I'm always trying to do better myself, particularly in transportation, where it gets wonky pretty quickly. And translating that into, hey, w when we fix this bridge, you're, you're going to get home to dinner with your kids that much faster every night. You know, having right. that ability to make it concrete for people is something he's extraordinarily gifted at. Yeah. And one more advantage of the moment right now, you know, the major bill has been passed, broadly supported right from the Oval Office and with a secretary with unique communications gifts and talents. This is a moment for yeah. transportation. It really is. It really is. Feel lucky to be here. Um, I was talking with a friend who um, was just recently at the White House, now is at an agency. Um, and he said to me, he said, DOT is the place where people want to work today. Uh, he was talking specifically about communications people, but he said it is broader than that. It's hyper-competitive 
to get into work at DOT today. And and this was, you know, he was comparing this to all the, the various agencies. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, look, I think for some of the reasons we've been talking about, obviously, uh, and, and I, when I'm speaking around, you know, town and around the country, I like to say if there were ever a time you love transportation that you wanted to join the federal government and come to USDOT, this is it. We have a president who loves transportation. We have an amazing secretary who's obviously a national figure and a fantastic guy to work for. And we are implementing the largest transportation bill in American history, standing up all these new programs, tackling climate change and equity and working with states and with cities. I mean, it, it's just, this is truly the best time you're going to do transportation at the federal level. So I have a hunch that's maybe why people want to want to come in. But I would say, I think people love to join this administration. Um, the Biden-Harris administration, you know, it is a great administration to work for. It has drawn a lot of amazingly talented people at all levels, people who are real government people who care about the work, who are doing it for the right reasons. It's an administration that's really clear on its priorities. Um, and it's just, you know, I continue to say this. Come on in. If you love transportation, we are hiring at USDOT. You come to your jobs. <laughs> uh, just, just hone that uh, resume, people, because it is competitive. Um, okay, so I do have a couple of questions that I like to ask all of my guests. Um, one of my favorites, it's a segment I call In the Vault, but I ask people to reach back into their careers and talk about a time that they made a mistake and what they learned from it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. It's a mistake with a silver lining, but I, I did learn something from it nonetheless. And it sort of, again, speaks to this is early in my career, the transition from Senator Moynihan to Senator Schumer. And when I knew less than I thought I did about something. So I'd been the, as I said, I'd been the transportation, you know, legislative aide for, for Senator Moynihan. I went to work for Senator Schumer, became the legislative director. When you're a legislative director, in theory, you have to be an expert in every subject, which, right. you know, <laughs> easier said than done. So early on in my time for him, the his then counsel and I, he was on the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, which he had been on in the House. Uh, we were approached by um, NARAL, one of the choice groups. There was a bankruptcy bill that was making its way through the committee. And they came to us and said, well, we would like you potentially to offer an amendment to make um, debts incurred under what was called the FACE Act, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Act, uh, make them non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. Because what was happening is the FACE Act had passed. There were a lot of protests around abortion clinics. And when people would be arrested under the FACE Act, they would declare bankruptcy, or when they were fine, not when they were, they would declare bankruptcy so they wouldn't have to pay the fines. So the choice groups came to us and said, make them non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. So the, the council and I went, that sounds good, <laughs> I have to say. In retrospect, we really, we did not understand the implications of the political battle we were stepping into. Um, I got, I got better at understanding before one just said yes to those types of amendments one needed to have. So, so you know, as, as the hearing draws nigh, we're starting to realize that this is, you know, obviously, you know, choice in abortion politics are among the most difficult issues you ever face um, on Capitol Hill. So as the day of the hearing draws nigh, um, we get into the hearing, the chair and the ranking member of the committee, who shall remain nameless, um, 
start going after my boss. There are dozens of cameras clicking. It is a media circus. And first, we are accused of um, a sloppy amendment that's duplicative of current law. Now, had I been working for Senator Moynihan and that had happened, I probably would have been fired on the spot. And I, I figured that maybe I was about to get fired, but just this was a different kind of politics. And so, you know, this enormous media circus and this firestorm, which we were completely unprepared for, it turned out I had the kind of senator who that's that's where he thrives. And but but for me, it was a it was a very deep lesson um, in, you know, again, as a new legislative director, being much more, much more, doing much more due diligence about saying yes to various types of amendments and being better prepared for what the potential political ramifications um, could be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that it is always so stressful when your your mistake is also so very public, right? I mean, it's just excruciating to experience that in something that is, you know, I, I think unique in in being a staffer in government or politics, that you're, you're right, your your successes and your failures can be very, very public. Well, and, and you know, also to sort of realize as much as I do, I, I do have a theory that staffers don't run amok and that mostly we do what our, what, what our bosses want us to do. You know, it was also like, wow, I, I got my boss to say yes to that amendment and I'm not sure I fully, you know, if I could rewind the tape, I might have said, hey, boss, it's going to be a media firestorm. And now, luckily, again, Senator Schumer is a man who can, can handle all that with ease. But I certainly didn't give him the appropriate warnings. Perhaps he right. knew them anyway. I mean, I think he, if you asked him now, he'd probably laugh about it and say, eh, I knew all that was going to happen anyways. But I didn't. <laughs> right. All right. So while we're on the topic of, of, um, of staff work, um, uh, in the other end of the uh, of the spectrum, I you know I have this fantasy that I may be able to one day raise the money and get the permitting for building a Hall of Fame to staffers on the National Mall. If I were able to do that, who would you nominate for the Staffer Hall of Fame? Well, it's funny. I'm going to nominate someone I work with right now, who I also worked with back in Barbara Boxer's office, Laura Schiller, who is the chief of staff. Yes. Here at USDOT. So it's, it's so funny. I feel so lucky. Laura and I worked together in Boxer's office where she was the chief of staff. And as you said, Jim, I was the deputy chief of staff in the LD. And then we kind of reunited here at USDOT. Um, and look, this is one of the fun things. This is, you know, this is the truth about being Capitol Hill staffers. You, it's the thing I probably love the most about the job. You form the closest relationships. You just do. And it's like you're your cohort, your your fellow alums, your peers from the Hill are kind of your friends and colleagues for the rest of your life. And Laura is one of those consummate staffers. She's served in the White House. She served in an agency. She served in the Senate and now helping to run this big agency. And I think she's just, you know, speaking of mentorship, she has been an extraordinary mentor, I think, to generations of folks in this town, myself included on many occasions. That is such a phenomenal and beautifully put nomination. Uh, and and you really captured something that is really um, important about being a staffer that goes beyond the job. Like it's about the experience. Um, and I just, I thank you for that description and your time today and all that you're doing for the country today. Um, on a personal level, Polly, when I started at the White House and was, you know, walking into transportation waters for the first time, you were so patient 
And um, I've, I can't express my appreciation enough for how you supported me in doing my job, even though that really wasn't your job to support me. Um, you did it as a part of who you are and in, as part of your public service. And so now it makes perfect sense now when I hear you talk about how you how you are a leader at, at DOT. Um, so thank you. So on behalf of a grateful oh. citizen and as a, as a grateful <laughs> former colleague, thank you. Well, thanks, Jim. And thanks for all your public service. And I think this is really nice that you're doing this. It's, it's given me a great chance to, to reflect on, you know, my time on Capitol Hill and my transition into other roles. And, you know, I'll just close with this. I feel awfully lucky. I've had an amazing career. I've had my, my challenging days and my wonderful days, but I've never had a dull day. And that's, I think, pretty important in this line of work. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. 